Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi. Let's see, I hope this cord, I'm, I'm trying to get, make this work with the camera as well. Uh, I want to do a talk today on a, a unique or unusual subject for myself about a very famous reform rabbi, reform rabbi. This is going to be, uh, uh, you'll see why I'm doing it. And uh, today's uh, podcast is being sponsored by my friends, uh, Dobie and Dina Safir, Diana Safir, uh, who are very kind to... Uh, uh, support the podcast and said nice things about it and uh, they were my gracious hosts I guess a couple months ago when I was at uh, their home and uh, Shabbos in uh, the Vive Towns so thank you very much <clears throat> I'm going to talk about Rabbi Solomon uh, Freehoff which most of you shouldn't have heard about uh, but I'm doing it for a reason because I'm not doing it as you'll see the uh, so we're talking about someone who was a big reform rabbi in America, one of the biggest in the United States of America, lived old, almost to be 100 years old. I remember he was born in 1892. He must have died around 1990 or something like that, very late. Okay? Um, and has a, and to look at his life, especially in connection with what we're going to be talking about, which is the Shalison Chuvis, the response to literature, uh, is to have a certain um, handle on uh, modern American history, especially the reform movement, which is now on the way out. That's the interesting thing. Um, in history, they always say the past is changing all the time. And what, of course, they mean by that is the perspectives. So one is a hero today, excuse me, it's not a hero tomorrow. We've gone through this with Robert E. Lee and Christopher Columbus statues being broken and things of that nature. Perspectives change. <clears throat> if you're Jewish, you understand that, uh, you know, you have one way of looking at Khmelnytsky and the Ukraine, they have statues of him as a hero. <clears throat> they have a different way. Past is changing. Perspectives change. <clears throat> now, um, in American Jewish history, and we've been around a couple hundred years already, uh, so one of the striking features is the denominali- denominationalism. There used to be a three large uh, denominations in the United States. That's how Jewish religion was broken up. Uh, Orthodox and conservative reform. If you're going by organization, it was reform, conservative, orthodox. That's what it used to be. And uh, reform, as we'll see in a second, really took off in this country. But like, uh, you know, all these things, it, had, it, it then sputtered out. And right now it's in the process of sputtering it out. And so it's going to be episode, like conservative Judaism an episode. If I'm right, and you never know the future, I'm talking about the way the trends seem for a long time now, you know, not only according to me, but, you know, according to most observers. So then, it's going to be very interesting, once reform is gone, and dies out, or conservative, things like that, how will historians then evaluate it? You understand? They'll see it in a different perspective, because they'll have no choice. And how will they look at orthodox? They'll have no choice. It's it's interesting how this goes. Uh, person we're talking about today, our hero, uh, is a clear, typical example of what you would call the rise of Reformed Judaism and then 
once it rose, it kind of, you know, had nowhere to go, which is interesting. Will success spoil Rock Hunter? And um, it's very interesting in this regard. And uh, may I say, how should I put it? Uh, you see um, very interesting twists and turns uh, when it comes to these denominations. May I say that uh, it was yesterday or two days ago I saw online, maybe in the Times of Israel. No, this is not from a firm publication. Where they, again, not from a firm publication, where it said that in the 21st century, you know, the last 22 years, over one third of the conservative shows have closed down. It's about 35% have closed down in the last 20, 25 years, less, and 20% of the reform. Now, really, I think it's higher, but it doesn't matter. So that's amazing. Notice it's not growing, it's shrinking. And it's shrinking pretty radically because if you're losing one-fifth that's in, in, in two decades, it's a lot. Here where I live in Baltimore, we have a big example is where um, the most prominent Reformed temple, the oldest, the Harsanid, just closed down. They sold out <laughs> to the Agoda, believe it or not, as a wedding hall. I can't, I'm serious. And um, they had to merge with another temple. Okay? Uh, so we see the trend. And um, Cincinnati, where our heroes spend a lot of time, uh, which was the place the reform movement really kind of started as an organized movement, uh, just closed down. It just took a vote to close down. So, I mean, it's, we're living in interesting times. Now, the truth of the matter is, it's really disgusting of somebody like myself to watch. This is my pornography. What can I tell you? I spent years watching, observing from afar the decline of these movements. It's really not a nice thing, but I can't help it. We all have our weaknesses. Now, to get down to brass tacks, we're dealing with some, I'm going to go to a biography now. We're dealing with somebody whose name was Rabbi Solomon uh, Freehoff, who was one of the biggest reform rabbis in the country. He had one of the largest temples, Rode of Shalom in Pittsburgh. I don't live in Pittsburgh, but I'm sure it's one of those biggie temples. I'm sure it's still around. And in his heyday, he had 3,000 families. Okay, maybe more. Uh, that's a lot. And um, uh, how should I put it? was a very prominent fellow. Well, I just said his name is Rabbi Solomon Freoff. No, it's Zalman Dov. <laughs> Zalman Dov. That tells you he's Lubavitch. Isn't that funny? One of the biggest guys who became a big reform rabbi is actually from Chabad background. As a matter of fact, he's a descendant of the Balatanya. <laughs> uh, here's a classic case of what life was like over 100 years ago in this country and many other places. Because, I'll tell you right now, all the Reformed rabbis came out, came from, quote-unquote, from backgrounds, or at least from Eastern European families at a certain point. Uh, the regular Reformed Jews didn't want to be rabbis because they're in business and things like that, with a few exceptions. Uh, so you had to recruit kids from, like I say, Russian families, Eastern European families, including many from uh, Hasidic backgrounds. It's really weird. So our hero was born Zalman Dov, and um, his father, uh, as you'll see, I knew people knew him in Baltimore, Rabbi Shalowski. His father was a Chabad um, sofer, you know, on Sefer Torahs. That's a from guy, from Shklov. I mean, yeah, it's a, this is a from area. Uh, 
I can't use the word Lubavitch because he was from the time when there was a civil war in Chabad, you know, after the Tzemach died, so he went with the other group to Chernigov. But whatever, uh, it'll have a Baltimore play out. So here's somebody from family. The mother was from, the father was from. Uh, they left Russia, you know, uh, Chernigov from the, uh, to go to London for a while. He was in London for a couple of years as a cipher for the Federation. And as a Magia, you know, to read over the Sefer Torah, a Magia. So now he's just a firm guy. I guess the money didn't work out. So then he came to the United States to Baltimore, Maryland. Why Baltimore? I do not know. But there were a lot of Chabad-type shoals here once upon a time based on the town from which you came. Danche Nizhen, Danche this, Danche... There was a Chernigovar shoal, where Chernigovar shoal, and where he went to. So the old area where Jews lived once upon a time, downtown Baltimore, which is true of downtown anywhere, Chicago, New York, Detroit, you know, uh, which was near the harbor in our case. It was called East Baltimore. I know it well. And there were 25 shoals. I mean, there were 25 from shoals. And if you go back, if our hero was born in 1892 in London and came here a year or two later to Baltimore, so you have somebody growing up in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Baltimore, Maryland, when the Jewish population is exploding because East European Jews are popping over here all the time. And um, it was a very from five minutes. Now, what I mean by that is, and again, this is true of many places. It's particularly true of Baltimore, though. Uh, we have a different history here than many other places, which is why Baltimore today is a is a more well-known town, quote-unquote, in the from world. There's a history behind it. And if you go back to the time when this guy was growing up, the, the late 18, 1890s and early 1900s, before the First World War, so what you would have would be uh, 25 shoals and more, all these guys coming from Eastern Europe, a very significant percentage of them were very from. I just told you they had Chabad shoals. So what does that tell you? The people came over where Lubavitcher Hasidim of one sort or another. Even a more modernish guy is already talking about Hasidish. And there were plenty of what we call Besnagdisha groups that came over. There was a Sholai new once, you know, saw it years ago where they had like 100, 200 shasas. I'm serious. It's Rabbi, the era of Rabbi, it was before Rabbi Forschlager even. And anyway, the problem, of course, as we know, looking back from the perspective of history, is there was a flash in the pan. There was no chinuch, really. There were no day schools and yeshivas, as we would call it today. And therefore, the parents were very religious. The grandparents were very religious. The kids went off the derrick from public school very slowly, without big fights, in a very kind of organic process, including our hero. So here's a guy who grows up in East Baltimore, on Exeter Street, if there are any Baltimoreans listening to this. We all know where that is. The old TA was there. And this is before TA. And uh, grows up in a firm family. <clears throat> his father in America, to supplement his income, became a mile. <clears throat> so that's from. His father's a cipher, a magi, and a mile. Right? And maybe also a shochet. I heard from a Shabalski with a shochet. You get the idea. Okay, they had a family of five, six, seven kids. And uh, they owned their own house. And he's growing up over here. Now, what was there in terms of chinuch at that time? There weren't day schools. What you had was a, a Talmud Torah. 
Um, in Baltimore, there was even what I would call an Orthodox Talmud Torah. But Orthodox Maskila, because that's what the Talmud Torahs were. And so after you went to public school in the afternoon, um, for a couple hours every day, you learn Limude Kodesh. That could be, um, you know, Chumash and Ivrit, Tanakh, uh, Dinim, and eventually Mishnahis and Gemara for some. It's the classic Talmud Torah model, which is a from a model. Theoretically, it could work. Because when you get down to it, these were serious institutions. They were meant to be anyway. And so just think, you go to public school, let's say, for example, from 7.30, 8 o'clock <clears throat> to 1 or 2. Just make it up. And then you go to the Talmud Torah, let's say from 2.30 to 6.30 or something like that. That's what it was. That's about as much time as you put in the Moody Kodesh today in a regular day school. You get what I'm saying? And Sunday, by the way, you went from 9 to 1. So they took this stuff seriously. Depends how you do it. However, I think you know, we know today, that Chinuch is a funny thing. It's almost not what they learn, but it's the Sviba and the atmosphere. And you can't compare a public school situation on the one hand with a day school situation on the other hand because of the Sviba. At least, that's what it seems. And our hero never had a not bad education, which is going to put him ahead of the other Reform rabbis, uh, from home, uh, from Talmud Torah. Uh, but already, that generation, there was already a big gap, as is going to happen always in immigrant societies, between the parents on the one hand, and the kids on the other. The parents are Yiddish-speaking, thinking European terms. The kids are all open-eyed about America. They're learning all the wonders of this country in public school, which there were wonders. It was a golden and Medina in a certain way, in terms of freedom and all the rest of it. And uh, the question is, what are you going to do when you grow up? That time in Baltimore, two, uh, there still are two excellent public schools, among others. One city, one's poly. Poly's obviously polytechnic for math and science stuff. City is, you know, for history, English, pre-law, and that sort of thing. And our hero wanted to get into poly, but it was too long of a line, so he went to city. Otherwise, he might have been an Orthodox engineer. And uh, here you are finishing, what are you going to do in life? At that time, Baltimore was very interesting. They had three or four uh, temples. Uh, uh, it was the Harsana, the Ob Shalom, and the Baltimore Hebrew. That's it. There were three temples um, that were big. Now, <clears throat> the rabbi, uh, Reformed Judaism was going through all kinds of phases at that time, until it crystallized. And one of the shuls was Oeb Shalom, which is still there. Today it has a big Orthodox day school that uses this campus, but it's still there. And it was what you would call to the right of the Reform movement. The rabbi there for many decades was Rabbi Zold, Henry had his old father. And he was one of these weirdos. He made up his own sitter, but he, but he did believe you should keep Shabbos. You know, this guy said the 1800s in America is a very confusing era Now's not the time to go into it. I'll, I'll be drawn into that too long. It's interesting, but it's too long. Uh, so the, Rabbi Zold was there from 1850s on. And uh, he was uh, from the Breslau Seminary, Hungarian. So the show was always like half Orthodox, half not. You understand? 
and uh, but regard itself as part of the reform movement. But I'll tell you right now, uh, they are um, in the process of becoming reform like everybody else. And the rabbi who replaced Zold, Rabbi Rosenau, was there for 50 years. Was a very interesting individual. He's a reform rabbi from Cincinnati, graduated. But he came from a Frum family. Therefore, he always had a soft spot for the Frum stuff, even though he did a lot of bad stuff. So he helped in their Israel when it started out, and he helped other schools that started out. Baltimore has an interesting uh, history where you, there, were, there were these non-Frum things that did help the Frum institutions. You know, a little bit here, a little bit there. And he was a talent scout. And whenever he saw a this Rabbi Rosenau, and whenever he saw a guy who has a potential for future, uh, in terms of Yiddishkeit, he recruited him to, to go to Cincinnati to become a reform rabbi. You understand? So I could easily dramatize this podcast and say, like an evil Pied Piper, he lured our hero in, and, you know, he was going to probably end up in YU, and instead he ended up in Cincinnati. But the truth of the matter is, at that time, reform Judaism to some people looked dynamic, including to our hero. I don't understand why, and he never spoke about it in life. He always was uh, re- deflecting the questions. Because he came from a from family, and even a Hasidic family, and he got along with his family, and later in life he supported them, gave them money, he had sisters who stayed from, you know, he was a good family guy, but he made a radical change. Because um, it seems that he wanted to become a reform rabbi. And so here you are, 1910, 1908, something like that, in those years, and you're one of the best guys in the Baltimore Talmud Torah. And what are you going to do in the future? The answer is, you can have a successful career as a rabbi, especially from the financial point of view, if you don't take an Orthodox congregation. And who wants to be an Orthodox rabbi, especially at that time? I think even the listeners to this podcast have a little bit of an inkling, certainly Dovi Safir, of the state of Kashras, <laughs> hundred years ago and the scandals. And all the other scandals are going on. So the Orthodox was not a pretty picture. And so the long and the short of it is that this guy, Zalman Dove, whose name was Frelinghoff, moves to Cincinnati, reinvents himself as uh, Solomon Freehoff, sounds more American, <coughs> with one F, and becomes a student in the uh, Reform Seminary. Now herein lies a tale also, because the Reform movement started originally in Germany in the early 1800s. 1820s, 30s, like that, and went in a lot of different directions. Uh, some simply wanted to be matrasurim, that's all. But others insisted, no, there's a sheet behind it. Notice everybody should be matra these surim. Shabbos, Kashos, Tarsim, Shabbat, you name it. And you develop a whole theology and a philosophy and an ideology which got very complex in the 19th century, to explain and justify these sorts of things. And they used the language of what was popular in the 19th century, even some of the 18th century, like Kant, the 18th century. So I'm not going to give a whole schmooze on the history of foreign Judaism. It's, it's interesting in its way, especially now that it's going down the tubes. But it had a whole uh, theological bent to it, when uh, part of his leading intellectuals, especially Abraham Geiger, who used to be the roommate of Sansa Rebel Hirsch. <laughs> and um, it was such a tkufa. 
But the reform movement, when it started in Germany, didn't really take off so much. Because it, what it pushed was a little bit too radical for most German Jews. <clears throat> they didn't want to be from. They didn't want to go the opposite extreme either. And therefore, what took off in Germany more than anything else was what, what you and I call conservative Judaism in America, which in Europe was called liberal Judaism. So you just got to know how the terms were used. So this would be Breslau, Zachariah Frankel, Gratz, and all those guys. Those shuls were very popular, and Sam Zreflerge had a whole war against them. He wasn't fighting the reform so much because they were like off the deep end. The main problem he was concerned about was what we would call today the conservative. Now, in the United States of America, by contrast, what happened was a little bit different. And that has to do with the ways of immigration. At the time of George Washington, there were 2,500 Jews over here. I won't go into that. And it didn't really start to change. There were only about seven or 8,000 in the whole U.S. in 1830. And then the German Jews showed up. When I say German Jews, they're mainly from Central Europe. We call them German Jews as a general term. Some from Bohemia, some Moravia, some Bavaria, and so forth. What we would call the Yekis. These Jews came a quarter of a million. <coughs> Excuse me. A quarter of a million um, in, 18, in 50 years. Between 1830... <coughs> I'm sorry. 1830 to 1880, shall we say. Um, these are famous figures in American Jewish historiography. So that made a big difference. 250,000. When most of them came, almost all of them, they were from a traditionalist background, what you and I would call orthodox shuls. But they weren't observant, and conditions in America aggravated the non-observant. In other words, when they let, got off the boat, usually they were, you know, somewhat observant. Um, and American conditions weren't great for this. All I can tell you is that over the course of between 1830 and 1850, let's say, for example... From from the 1850s to 1880s, reform took off. Slowly at first, here and there, by the time you finish the Civil War, the reform skyrocketed. That was a particular form of Judaism that appealed to these German Jews. And so they 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 won a total victory. (coughs) Well, under the weather today. Um... So it's a remarkable story. You go across America, New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Chicago, Cincinnati, St. Louis, I mean, the north, the south, the east, the west. You see, Shoal started, it was originally from, blah, 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 it's reformed. Again and again and again. There were very few exceptions. In Baltimore, you have now the Sheriff of Israel, uh, the Chesikamun, <coughs> I mean, there were, very few exceptions of shows that did not go reform. I would say 98%. That's incredible, okay? Right? Incredible. Now, when that happened, if you were a reform rabbi or leader in this country, you felt great. You said, our complete and total victory over the Orthodox and whatever is a vindication of our perspective that we've come up with the right formula for Judaism in America. The facts prove it. <coughs> all the shuls are switching. All the congregations are switching. And so this justified then in becoming radical, radical. Now, let's be very unilateral. Uh, 
we can abolish this. We can get rid of that. You don't have to, we create our own ceremonies. We get rid of it. You know, you name it. Like I say, Shabbos, Kashras, Taras, Mishpacha, Tariyag, Mitzvah, out the window. And those who complain about it are like stupid little individuals swinging in the wind. Nobody is listening to you. You know what I'm saying? If a guy says, like, oh, you're on Mechal Shabbos, but everybody in the town except for that guy joins the reform, he looks stupid. He looks stupid. This is what happened all over America. And so by the time you get to the 1880s, the reform was in the process of, of gaining a tremendous triumph. The only difference was, is it right-wing reform, left-wing reform, central, a little more traditionalism, a little less traditional, but overall, the idea of getting rid of the Orthodox was a double pasha. And therefore, the people who created Reformed Judaism in this country and who articulated very smug, uh, properly so, no, you can understandably so, and very self-confident, and, you know, uh, this is, America is going to be great, because in this country, Judaism is going to be different than it is in other countries around the world, and we will show the way how to be modern, and, uh, you know, uh, 19th century, and Adraba, the other Jews of the world, We'll look at America like a shining hill and I'll say, that's the kind of Judaism we want. <clears throat> and eventually, everybody will become reformed like America. Even the Hasidim in Russia, in Galicia, in Hungary, the Sephardim, everybody will sooner or later because we, Kimi America, Tesei Sarah, Udra Shami, I don't know, Washington, D.C., something like that, Cincinnati. You know, they were convinced that this is the right Mahalo. <clears throat> then, however, God had a sense of humor. <clears throat> And what happened was that um, all of a sudden, 1881, came a huge wave of immigration from Eastern Europe. Uh, starting in 1881, and pretty steady. It's If you go online, you look the figures, you'll be quite interesting. By the time you get to the first decade of the 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt is 100,000 Jews coming here from Eastern Europe every year. That's a lot of people, 100,000 Jews. Legally, I'm talking about, legally. Okay? Um, the reform was aghast. What's going to happen now? These Jews are too Jewish. They didn't have the same experience as the German Jews in the 19th century, uh, who instantly became members of the middle class. Uh, it's just a different group. And they're Yiddish speaking. They have too much orthodoxy in them. What's going to be? Now, the leaders of the reform movement say like this. <clears throat> Really, our ideas are so good, even they're going to come around. It's just going to take another 50 years. <clears throat> you get it? Notice, we had plans that now America should become all reform and everything we gewaldic. It's now the plans have been upset by the fact that between 1880 and 1920s, coming 2.5 million Jews, that's going to complicate things, okay. But eventually, their kids will go to public school, like the person I just told you, Frio, and they'll become reform, you know, some a little earlier, some a little later. That was the plan. And to show how confident they were, <clears throat> the Reform Union got together, made what they called the Pittsburgh Platform, which is their 13 Anilo Mamins. They don't believe in nothing. <laughs> Zero. Uh, don't believe in the Torah, don't believe in the Mitzvahs, you know, forget it. They said it, but family. That's to show, you know, we're, we're, we're staking a marker over here. Now, 
the reform got strong for a bunch of reasons, one of them which that they realized the value of organization, which we in the firm world do not know. They get all the reform shows together in one group, all the reform rabbis together in one group. And if they have arguments, you work it out. Uh, this was uh, the accomplishment of Isaac Mayer Wise, who was a big rabbi in Cincinnati. And he kept saying, the, the ideology doesn't count. Just get everybody together in one group and then we'll take over. He was right. And at the time I said there were no yeshivas or anything like that. But he made the Reform Yeshiva or, or Seminary, or it's called Hebrew Union College, which is the one that's just closing now in Cincinnati, because he was a rabbi in Cincinnati. And he said, it doesn't matter if the students are smart or not. Start it up, and then as we go along, we'll fix it. And the Hebrew Union College, therefore, in his time, was like, what shall I say, like a Jewish theological seminary in Europe. You know, you had Gemara, you had Chumash, you had Mernavuchim, that kind of thing. Jewish texts. The students came from a zero background, so there are a lot of famous stories about how dumb they were, but okay, that's how you start. Um, he died around 1900, 1890-1900, and then the reform movement was taken over by hard left-wing, not just left-wing, hard left. Uh, and the head of the seminary became Kaufman Kohler, who was a real super-duper anti from fanatic, mainly because he had been a student of Samson Rifle Hirsch. So if you learned by Hirsch, either you were turned on or you were turned off. Right? He has many Hirsch's characteristics, except in a trafe, in the trafe direction. And he took over the seminary and said, it's too traditionalistic. I want to completely revamp the curriculum and revamp the, 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 the staff. Uh, anybody who's Zionist is going to get fired because they're very anti-Zionist. Anybody suggests Chasper Khalil, Yishid Kosher, you know, get fired. And he wanted to make it a hard reform business. And he made what they call classical reform. Classical reform is like extreme reform. If you ever look at their sitter from that time, it's like 25 pages, something like that. It's all English, except one or two lines of Hebrew. And the idea was you get rid of all references to Tariq Mitzvahs and things like that. Uh, make it very similar to Protestantism. And the Jews at that time thought it's, it's great. It's cat's pajamas. That element. But the Reform Movement could not help realize we're not going to take over American Judaism so easily because two and a half million Eastern European Jews from Lithuania, from Ukraine, from White Russia, from Galicia, from Hungary are all pouring in here and there. They're not like us. In addition, the Reform was so anti-Mitzvahs that it provoked the rise of the conservative movement. Which is a shame because it was a waste of time. But anyway, in other words, the way American history should have run was <clears throat> the reform started in 1872. Ten years later, they had their famous banquet, at their first banquet, where they served shrimp. And everybody got angry that's a trafe banquet, a Jewish thing. And the people who were angry broke off and started conservative. No, they should have started Orthodox. And let's say started YU then. And then while you would have been earlier, then American history would look different. But that's not what happened. Instead, they started the Jewish Theological Seminary and started the conservative movement. And that came with all those troubles. Now, to get to our story. So during the period, I would say, of 1900 to, let's say, 1920, 
in that era, 25, uh, you got super duper hard left hashkafas on theology if you were trained in the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. Hard left. And I'm talking about hashkafa wise. That's when our hero was there. Uh, Solomon Freyoff came there, I don't know, 99, something like that. I'm going to finish around 1912, 1914, whatever, those years. And Nifri was exposed to extreme kfira, you know? I mean, it's what you're taught. Uh, on the other hand, they also teach you how to deliver a sermon, how to run a synagogue, temple, and so forth. And he graduated. And the students often came from much less background than he had. So relatively speaking... He could read Hebrew well. He could learn Gemara a little bit. Learn Mishnayis. He was a very smart guy. And within the context of reform, he was like the Vilnagon. Plus, they switched professors, and they got this guy, Lauterbach, who's important to the story, uh, Jacob Lauterbach. These are names that were famous once upon a time. They're totally forgotten today. And he was a Galatianer who left Orthodoxy, but, you know, he went to Germany to the Hildesheimer Seminary. Compared to Galicia, the Hildesheimer Seminary is like reform, get it? And he came to America and eventually ended up in Cincinnati. He knew how to learn. He was a Talmud Chacham. And he was a good writer, too. They used to have the old Jewish encyclopedia, you know, the big black ones from long ago, 100 years ago. He wrote a lot of the articles there. Not bad. On Pilpul, on Responsa. <clears throat> there were many interesting subjects of Lambdas. Not bad at all. But on the other hand, he joined the reform. And he had all these uh, crazy Ashkafas as well. So you're talking about what's going on in the inner circle of the reform movement. They themselves, <clears throat> the opinion I'm talking about, realize one thing, which is, okay, we've conquered the Yekas. It's going to be a long time before we conquer the, the Eastern European Jews. <clears throat> but within our own ranks, now that we've won, what have we won? We've taught our people in the temples you don't keep Shabbos, you don't keep kosher, you don't keep Yantav, you don't do this, you don't do that. So what do you do? You see? What do you do? And having reached the point of success, they realize they're empty. They write this in their own, um, you know, uh, literature. You know, when they had conventions and things like this. <laughs> what do we do? The rabbis themselves say, what do we say about Shabbos? I mean, we have services on Saturday or Sunday, Friday night. What is Shabbos? We can't tell our people, you know, you know, Kibayama Shri Shabbos Vainafa, we don't believe that stuff. What is Shabbos to us? Are we going to abolish Shabbos? <clears throat> are we against Bris Mila? No, so are we coming out of Pam only saying that? Or we're not? You get what I'm saying? What is Pesach? You don't have the stupid Haggadah, you know, with all that dumb stuff in it. So then what do you have? Uh, do we have Matzah at the, at the Seder? How do we explain that? You see? And so. They had to deal with the question, once you succeed in winning these people over to your temples, what do you do there? They never said, they never worked that out. They had endless discussions about this stuff. Like I say, it's interesting from a voyeuristic point of view, but uh, didn't work it out. And they recognized themselves. We made things too dull, too sterile, too dry, too rational. Nothing is allowed in if it doesn't make 100% sense. The heck with the mitzvahs. You know, they were left with a garnish. You understand? In other words, is the definition of reform to somebody 
who doesn't keep Shabbat, that's a negative definition. Who doesn't keep kosher is a negative definition. What do you, what do you stand for actually? You know what I'm saying? The best they could say was they have a mission to the world to leave the exemplary lives, be ethical people, and show the world how to be ethical. Well, plenty of guys there are ethical. Plenty of guys. You have to be reformed Jew to be ethical. You have to be Jewish to be ethical. It's a fact. So, even more than them. In fact, a lot of these reformed millionaires were big businessmen whose ethics were not so great in the business area. So, you know, what do you do? This is where the our hero comes up. He graduates around 1915, I think, and he became a member of the faculty. Then he was a chaplain in World War One, And then afterwards, uh, the... Seminary went even farther to the left than it had been before. And he left and became a big rabbi, first in Chicago and then in, in um, Pittsburgh. Now, as I said before, compared to the others, he was more interested in rabbinic literature. And he liked learning, as we would say today, which is extremely unusual for Reform Rabbi Nat Kufo because the amount of Gemara they taught, if I remember correctly, was something like 16 hours in four years. Whatever, you know, something along those lines. And the reason Kaufman Kohler said is, what do they need to know Gemara for? You're never going to get a Shiloh. Never, you know, a reformed rabbi in those days, they had it worked out. You have the, the services on Sunday or, or, fr- or Saturday or Friday. Uh, and by the way, Kaufman Kohler himself used to say they should switch from Shabbos to Sunday. And then later when he said, I made a mistake, I say it's worse. <clears throat> you know, th- this is the level that they were dealing with. Um, I don't know if I told you a story. Years ago, I was once doing one of my <clears throat> talks here in Baltimore on, <laughs> on Saturday night. <clears throat> it was about the history of Israel. Years ago, the 40s, I mentioned Abba Hill Silver. He was a very big reform rabbi from yesteryear. And he had a big, very large temple in uh, Cleveland. And a lady came to me afterwards, a from lady, <clears throat> after the speech, she says, I just want you to know my father was a firm guy in Cleveland, but he was a big fan of Abba Hill Silver because he was an unbelievable speaker, which I'm sure was true. And he would go to listen to his speeches in the temple. You know what I'm saying? He was a firm guy, but this was as he ate her heart. <clears throat> he would go to listen to the sermon. And I want you to know, uh, even though you weren't allowed to have a yarmulke, but my father walked in, they didn't bother him. He could have a yarmulke. And he had a seat there, and I'll be holding silver saw him, it didn't bother him, and so on and so forth. So I said to the lady, I've never been to Cleveland in my life. I said to the lady, I guess the shoal must be near your house or something like that. Otherwise, how would you get there in terms of walking? She said, no, it's actually far away. I said, well, how did your father get there? She said, you don't understand. The services were on Sunday. <laughs> had no, pro- no problem with driving. <laughs> you see? That's where things were. Now, that's where things were. So, our hero becomes a, one of these big rabbis of a, of a huge temple, eventually in in uh, Pittsburgh for decades. I used to see the old Jewish Times in Baltimore uh, when I did my work on Rabbi Ruderman. So, I'd look in the 20s and 30s. His sermons were always in the paper. The speech was always in the paper. He was an excellent speaker. He didn't have so much content, to tell you the truth, but he had this, this style. And that's all the Balamatim want. They want to hear the good English. 
and a fancy smile. It doesn't have to be, you know, so Eiskehalten. He was very scholarly, and may I say, uh, he was interested in a general way in what you and I would call rabbinic literature. Uh, but he had drunk the Kool-Aid. He really bought into all this stuff that they taught him in the seminary. It's quite remarkable to me, because the guy came from a Lubavitch family. His father was a Sheikher and a Moyle and so forth. His mother read the Senarena. Uh, his siblings, most of them, were observant. Uh, so how do you make this break? There's something in there we don't know. But he really bought into this idea that the Judaism is a philosophy and the Bible is not real and the philosophy has to be updated every few years and all the other things, whatever the, the Reformed theology as complicated was, emerged. All of his life he was. It's just interesting. At the same time, he likes to learn. And, uh, oh, he was in big demand as a speaker and so forth and so on. And in Pittsburgh, he, uh, where, he, where he had his place, so he meets and became friends with Rabbi Leiter, the famous Rabbi Wolf Leiter, who was the Galatianer Gon in in, um, in Pittsburgh. Rabbi Leiter is the same age. They both were born the same year. <clears throat> so these are two guys, <clears throat> let's say, uh, in their late 30s, whatever by the time we're talking about. Is that right? In their early 30s. Uh, Rabbi Leiter was a Galtzianer, uh who one of these people knew everything, you know, is like a Vadi Yosef type, and um, uh, a very different type of person, let's put it that way. But he wasn't, you know, some uh, fiddler on the roof type rabbi. Uh, Leiter, first of all, was a great gong, and he was a big in halacha. He wrote Shalos, this is a true story that I'm saying, he wrote Shalos and Shubas before his bar mitzvah. <laughs> It was Eloy, you know, in uh, in Galicia. And uh, I just finished doing a series on Galicia. And he spoke 12 languages. He knew Limune Chol as well. Uh, well, you know, you live in that part of Europe. You got to know, it's not so hard. I mean, if you're in Galicia, you got to know you're German, you're Polish, you're uh, Ukrainian. Then you got Hebrew, English, Yiddish. That's six already. And he was for a while in Holland, so that's seven languages. So all you need is another five to make 12. So he was... Uh, a very uh, knowledgeable in a broad way. <clears throat> and they became friends. And you'll see later on that um, they developed an interesting relationship in which you basically have a human computer in your hands. Anything you want to know where it's located, all you do is ask the lighter. You understand? On the other hand, I'm sure I will, uh, uh, Freehoff uh, support him financially, I imagine. Most importantly... Listen to this. Most importantly, and I know other cases like this, because he had a relationship with this uh, Orthodox rabbi, this Rav, so even though he doesn't believe in getting it all, <clears throat> he writes about it all the time, you don't understand the reform, they reject the Tarigmitsis in principle. In principle. Therefore, <clears throat> they're in favor of Mamzerus, if you follow what I'm saying. And he says it all the time. But he said like this, if somebody in his community gets divorced, Go to the rabbi, get get a Jewish divorce. It's not that we believe in it, but you know, you never know. Might have. It's 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 a it's a good thing to do, and I'm sure his shooting the Rav Leiter. I didn't know him, of course. Must have figured like this. Th th this is the most important part, because Shabbos and Kasha is bad enough. 
once you start with this business where there's civil divorce, it's mumzerous that you can't fix. You understand? And uh, you had around America in some places, you know, every every case is different. You had in America, I had in Baltimore, where the reform and the conservative, um, years ago, would tell people in their congregation, listen, you're getting divorced, and so forth, just, you know, go to the, like, Rabbi Rottenberg here in Baltimore. I know I had a lot of people from the conservative show, and I think from one of the reform shows also, which is a tremendous to Ellis. Agree? It's a tremendous to Ellis. Uh, you're saving lives. Uh, so that means you have to have the right friendship and communication with them. Today, it's not like that. Today, the three denominations, the Orthodox conservative reform, are sharply against each other. And reform rabbi will never say go. I mean, I don't think anyway. I don't know. Uh, you know, they'll say, you know, in principle, don't get a get or get a conservative get or something like that. Don't go to the Orthodox. We live in such times. But in our case, our hero developed a close relationship over decades. This was lighter. Because he had two big scholars of a different type living in Pittsburgh side by side. Now, uh, but he was totally in the world of reform. And he wrote all, the, all these books, which are not important, about, you know, uh, reform Judaism. Really, they're, they're out of date. You know, they're not interesting. Then came World War Two, and I met at least 100,000 American Jews fought in the army, probably a couple hundred thousand. That's a lot of people. A couple hundred thousand U.S. Jews were in the service in the Army and Navy in World War Two. So, you have chaplaincy, get it? And the Catholics have their chaplain system, the Protestants have their chaplain system. So the Jews got to make a chaplain system. What do the chaplains do? Let's put it this way. Do they do it from? They don't do it from. You're a soldier. You're a chaplain out there with the soldiers. Do you run a an Orthodox prayer service, a Reformed prayer service, a conservative prayer? You know what I mean? We're talking the 1940s when there were three strong denominations. And so what they said was, we have no choice but to get together and try to figure out how to cooperate to produce uh, for the Army and for the Navy, you know, one set of regulations or recommendations. It's very interesting uh, because they set up a committee of three, one Orthodox, one Christian Reform. So our hero became the chairman, uh, Solomon Freel, was the head of the, this is going to sound funny, of the Halacha Committee, the Responsive Committee for the Army and the Navy. Uh, the reason... He was a chairman was because the Orthodox and conservative were close to each other, they more bitter fighting. The Orthodox guy was Leo Young, uh, who I know Debbie wrote about the other day, because uh, he was a modern Orthodox rabbi, but knowledgeable, a yeah, very prestigious synagogue. So he's the guy who has to give the Orthodox sock for all the soldiers and the sailors. The conservative had Milton Steinberg, who was a famous guy in his he died young. He was a famous guy in his day. I wouldn't say he was the biggest Talmud Chacham I walked down the road, but he knew stuff, and anyway, he could talk to the conservative leaders. <clears throat> they are arguing over the halacha, get it? In other words, the Orthodox and conservative, because they're close to each other, are more bitter. And Orthodox rabbi said, this is the halacha. And conservative rabbi said, no, that's the halacha. Reform said, what's halacha? <laughs> 
<laughs> What's halacha? So they say, you be the head of the committee. It'll be more shown. Because uh, you don't believe in nothing. And and Triop said, yeah, it's true. I don't believe in anything. And so during the years of World War II, which was 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, they had what they called the Responsa Committee. And all the questions that popped up in the service were supposed to be referred to them. And they're supposed to work out what are the official position of Judaism on these issues. And they were honest enough to say, sometimes we can't find agreement. But when you can find agreement, it's there. So he started writing Shalas and Shuvas in English. You get it? And what he would do is he would write this up and show it to uh, Leo Young and show it to your people and show it to Milton Steinberg, your people, and back and they had back and forth. And he liked to do that. Um, it's an eye-opener for him as much as anybody else because he was coming from a hard background of reform. Now, I tell you the truth, I always have trouble with this because he came from a from family. But the question, should the soldiers, you know, uh, put their hats on uh, when they eat or something like that? No, it's a violation of reform duties to make somebody wear a yarmulke, you know, those kind of things. Um, but can you uh, uh, have services uh, when you're in a, uh, what do you call it, uh, in a room with a Christmas tree? Uh, you know, I have it here somewhere. One second. I saw it on a page here somewhere. This is, you'll, you'll bear with me for a second. Here's a list of the type of questions that I saw that they asked. Uh, here you go. Listen to this. I hope you can see me. Uh, here's the type of questions that they got in 1942. May the Torah be read at other times if it's impossible to hold services on Shabbos mornings. Should Jewish soldiers practice the etiquette of uncovering their heads for the singing of the national anthem. Now this turned out to be a, a big joke. I'll tell you why. Turns out they found they no. Turns out in the military you're supposed to keep your hat, hat on during the Star Spangled Banner. Civilians take it off, but the military keeps it on. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a Shila, as, as so, so to speak. You understand? Um, wait a minute. Uh, should Jewish services be held in a post-interfaith chapel with a Christmas tree? To what extent? Are Jewish soldiers justified in violating the dietary laws under military conditions? That's a very serious, you know, that's a very straightforward type of question. Uh, should married Jewish soldiers be encouraged to write conditional divorces for their wives to prevent them from becoming a goodness if the soldier disappears? Again, a classic shallow from the response to literature. Should Jewish soldiers be married, insert a special clause in the Ksuba, providing for a divorce in case of the disappearance. That's from the conservatives. Could, a, could the fact that an individual is a coin make him be conscientious objector? <laughs> you know, not supposed to be in room with a mace. Could a rabbi who was a coin volunteer to be a chaplain? If a soldier was going to be shipped overseas, could a chaplain perform marriage during Sphira, Cholomoy, or other times? That's a very good question. Can you have dances and activities for Jewish soldiers during Sphira? You understand that's only an Orthodox would care about that. Should a JWB Jewish welfare worker arrange for a marriage to be performed by justice of the peace if there's no Jewish chaplain available? May a chaplain undertake the conversion of a soldier's non-Jewish fiancé in order to officiate the marriage? I'm just saying, there's 22 of these altogether. May a chaplain officiate at the marriage of a Jewish soldier and a non-Jewish woman if he's about to go overseas in no time for conversion? That's a reform child. 
may a chaplain officiate at a marriage if one party is present and the other one's elsewhere in contact by radio or telephone. That's a nice shout. Can the uh, the Jewish Welfare Board was distributing small plastic mezuzahs with printed scrolls uh, on them attached to the mezuzah to be attached to the soldier's dog tag. If the guy asks for it, can you give it to them too? May a chaplain officiate a marriage with one of the parties previously married does not have a get. Right? Seventh-day Adventists have received special permission from the War Department to be excused from any obligations as possible on Shabbos should Jewish chaplains try to do the same thing for observant Jewish soldiers. To what extent should a chaplain modify the form of the marriage service he customarily uses if the couple specifically asks for a different form? May a chaplain show movies on Friday night. <laughs> May the Jewish dead be buried in a separate section in military cemeteries. Must they be? Uh, which you know they don't do that in the military. May a chaplain perform a, ma- a marriage on Friday night. That, my friends, is a nice child. That's the Ramon. May a chaplain officiate in a mixed marriage. So I'm simply, you know, uh, giving you a, a small digest. of the, There are many, many more things that popped up during the 1920s uh, when, uh, how should I put it, when um, the soldiers were out at war and uh, you had to come up with some answers because the army wants to know what he told the chaplain. And let's put it this way. If you push it too far, the army will say no. You might even make a chiloshep. So it's tricky. Now, the Orthodox and the conservative, on one hand, form saw it so differently. You know what I'm saying? For example, what's wrong with showing a movie on Friday night? On the other hand, why do you have to keep your head on? Uh, why should kashos matter during the war? And he had a learning experience because he's clashing in a dignified way with Leo Young and these other guys. And as the war went on, he learned how to write the response of the Jews, which he showed to the others. They had to get their approval better, which is why, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but Dobie Zavir told me, here's some story that uh, uh, when Freehoff ran into Byron Cutler at a farm store or something in New York, and Byron said, I heard about your sock over here, and that one was correct, and this one wasn't correct, something like that. I don't know if that's true, but it's, it is believable, because those kind of things were going on at that time. And whoever was in charge of these commissions had a lot of kayach over the soldiers. <laughs> it's very interesting that he writes to this other uh, Lauterbach and says, send me a copy of the Chafetz Chaim's book. I heard the Chafetz Chaim wrote a book, Machne Yisrael. Send me a copy. I want to see what he says. So uh, he developed, therefore, in the aftermath and during the war experience and afterwards, this big interest of writing chuvis, which means organizing the halachic material even though you yourself don't hold from it, don't practice it. Now, when the war was over, he continued his career, but I would say that by the time we get to the post-war period, the reform movement was in an interesting situation because, like all these denominations, had their ups and downs. Uh, The reform was very successful among the German Jews, like almost 100%. But But then they came to a plateau, so from 1900 approximately to the Second World War, there are very few new Reformed temples, almost none. They got their chalik, the rich German Jews, and they don't have the others. The others are going conservative. If they're, if they're not from, they want a, a shul, they're going conservative. You know, the Eastern European Jews. Some of them joined the temples, but generally not. After the Second World War, they're starting to expand uh, because of the baby boom after the Second World War, 
the conservative and the reform took off. But the conservative much more. Okay? There was an increase in the reform temples, but the conservative really skyrocketed. Which is why now they're plummeting. Because they, so to speak, expanded too much. Uh, by then, it's pretty clear the reform is not going to conquer the world. Uh, if you're talking about the late 40s and 50s, do you really think that everybody's going to become reformed? They themselves face these problems. Our heroes still lived in a bubble. He said sooner or later they're going, they're going to become like us. They never, in other words, I think he had to tell himself that. And the interesting part is um, the consequences, what I call, of unilateralism. So let me explain what I mean. The reform movement and the conservative movement started with a certain idea in mind. Like it's all predicated on certain axioms. And the problem is if the axiom doesn't turn out to be right, then you're in trouble. The reform movement started because these guys convinced themselves that the Orthodox Judaism is doomed. Right? It's doomed. It's so stupid and so untenable, it can't last. The younger generation is just dropping out. And so, if you if you convince yourself that's the case, then why do you have to keep Shabbos? Because the others are offended. If you don't, if you don't keep Shabbos, it's always been a Jewish custom. I don't care what the others think. They're going to be gone soon. It's like I'm dealing with an old person confined to bed, so to speak. It's not going to last much longer. It's so I don't have to worry about their opinions. So we can be as radically unilateral as we wish to and abandon Torah, Mitzvah, whatever you want to say because the opposition isn't even going to be there. You get it? The opposition is going to be there. That's what you call a zero-sum game. We're going to win and they're going to lose and there'll be nobody left to complain to us. Uh, if you shoot everybody, so to speak, nobody complain, is going to complain that you shot them. Uh... That was all based on the notion, the way they saw it, that the Orthodox Judaism is so untenable that it's going to die out. And there were many indications, you know, that's true. You and I know differently, but that's the way they saw it. Now, I'll have to stop this for a second to rewind. Hold on. Okay. I'll try to pick up where I left off. As I said... The reform movement, and to the conservative movement also in its way, was predicated on the belief that the Orthodox is going to die out. It's untenable. And and people, and you know, all Lubavitchers will end up like Freehoff, so to speak. You know, came from a firm family, doesn't mean anything. The trend is definitely in our direction. And that enabled them to do really radical things which ought to be shocking. I mean, a firm person would say to reform, listen, Kasha, how can you be Matar Mamzerim? How do you how do you tell people they don't need to get aren't you worried about the consequence of that? That's pretty radical. You're messing people over. No, they would answer. There's not gonna be such a concept as Mamzeris anymore. Because we don't believe in none of that stuff. And nobody will believe in twenty years of that stuff. So it won't matter. You, you get what I'm saying? So what's shocking and offensive to this one, it doesn't mean nothing to the other guy. You guys will be gone anyway. But you're taking a big bet. If everybody's talking dead, okay. But if if they're alive, 
they survive, you create a whole category of mamzerim, or just you know apply that across the board in other halachic areas, and you've created radically different norms without getting any kind of consensus from the other Jews in doing so. You see, throughout Jewish history, most of it, we're a consensus-driven kind of entity. You didn't go too far from the consensus because you want to stay within the confines of Kali's role. But in the 19th century, they say, we are going radically different. And we don't care. How could they? And we, but we still claim to be part of the Jewish people. How can you do that? Because soon we're going to be the only part of the Jewish people. But as things turned out, and it became evident after the Second World War, the other parts aren't folding. The conservative was much bigger than the reform by that time. And the Orthodox was starting, I don't know if Freyoff could see, you know, what you and I know, which is the beginnings of the Orthodox rise in this country, starting, you know, with the end of the war and the rise of the Yeshivas and the day schools and all the rest of it. You know, I'm not sure he saw that, but I think it was pretty clear the Orthodox are not folding. Um, so then where does the Reform fit in? Now, the Orthodox will say like this, the Reform is completely trafe and is illegitimate, which is the position in the state of Israel today. The Reform get angry and say, how can you say that? We're Jewish like anybody else. The Orthodox say, you're not Jewish like anybody else. Who gave you permission to go off on your own derech? Who gave you permission? They, there's no good answer to that. They didn't ask permission. They just did it. Now, you don't have the right, morally, to just say, I'm just doing it, and expect the other person to say, okay, well, whatever you say goes. What if I don't agree with you? What if I think what you're doing is illegitimate? What if I think, I, my personal opinion, you have the right to your opinion, I have the right to my opinion. What if my opinion is what you're doing is not legitimate? It's not acceptable? Well, too big. What if I say it's not too big? So, that's the state of play today, where one group, group doesn't talk to the other because there's no common ground. Um, so this is where the reform movement found itself in the mid and then later 20th century. Remember, Freyoff died, I told you, in like 1990. Okay? So he lived through a time when he saw the reform stuff beginning to disintegrate. Um, now, I wish I could say, as a result, he moved more to the right. But it's not true. He just got very interested more and more in the response literature per se. Um, and in the 1950s uh, and early 60s when he was, I guess, in his 60s uh, he published two uh, excellent books that's the reason I'm mentioning today which are, as far as I know, the best books in English on the response to literature as a genre uh, it was just the fruit of a lot of years of interest that he had in it and a lot of ideas he picked up he's a very good writer, and he had this human um, internet, what's his name, Rabbi Leiter, to ask him any questions he wanted to know, and one book was published by the Jewish Publication Society in, um, in 1955, called The Response to Literature, which is really excellent, <laughs> you know, uh, you can tell a little bit that, you know, he's not from, but most of it, mostly it's just a scholarly type of things, okay, and he says black and white, I got everything. There cannot be too many scholars as thoroughly as home in the field of responses. Rabbi Wolf Leiter of uh, Pittsburgh. I'm deeply grateful, beneficiary of his memory of his responses. I mean, you know, 
he says what it is, and he wrote a wonderful introduction to the Shalos and Shivas. I heard about it from my Rebbe when I was a thing in high school. Okay, so it was famous, weird at that time, to the Reform Rabbi should be into this. And it's really an excellent um, introduction to the literature of the Shalos and Shivas, which he has, um, the origin and development, the leading respondents, he gives you the name of famous people who they were, you know, the famous uh, Meshivim, you might say, a selection of responses, in other words, unusual and famous ones that are famous in, in Jewish history. This is why I do a lot of podcasts out of it. from the Shalos and Shubas. Which are the famous Shubas and which are the non-famous Shubas? I've, you know, I've mentioned from time to time different, you know, different ones. Widespread debates, in other words, which ones were um, controversial. And there's a whole history in Kali Yisrael of controversial Shubas and the back and forth on it. History and the response of modern inventions, curious ones, and then perspective development the response to literature, in which he says, you know, it doesn't look like it has much of a future. Uh, certainly not in America. He was right there. This country, other than Ramosha Feinstein, is not a place that produces shells and shoes. I've spoken about this on, po- on podcasts. It's interesting to me. The Eretz is different. And there, they're like a dime a dozen. I mean, the Eretz is definitely a major headquarters of shells and shoes. Um, increasingly productive all the time. Not the USA. Um, so it's funny that a guy from his background and his Ashkafas should write an excellent work, uh, which I could recommend to anybody if you're interested. First of all, if you're interested in history. Second of all, you just want to know what Charles and Schubert are. Uh, I don't know of a better work. And it's funny that a guy like him did it, but it's a fact. And it was published by the JPS, which is not a firm thing. And clearly, he took it around the country speaking in temples and places like that, sisterhoods, whatever, try to get people's interest in it. He's always saying like this, the halacha and the response is a guide but not a governance. Notice, nobody tells us what to do. We're reformed Jews. We don't believe in nothing. He says this. <laughs> we don't believe in nothing. Now now that we said that, let's see what the, the, the response have told us about Shabbat, about Kashrut, about Pidyan Shvuyim, about Zionism, about life in general, I don't know, you know, think whatever you want. Um, and it's interesting to us to look, and maybe we can find some parts that fit for us. But he always said like this, maybe we'll pick up some old men, hug him, but not B'tayrus, Metzuvah Ve'osa. Right? He's reformed. The worst thing in the world is Metzuvah Ve'osa. We're always in a Metzuvah Ve'osa. Right? So, in Orthodox Judaism, we say, God don't Metzuvah Ve'osa, Mesha'ina Metzuvah Ve'osa. But him is the opposite, you see? Now, this book was popular for a while in certain circles. I wasn't around at that time. But he then followed it up with another book, which is also excellent. And again, I recommend it. It's called Treasury of Responsum, okay, which I'm holding in my hand here. And what he did was, um, what he did was to uh, give in English and the kids are about tw- uh, third. Excuse me, 65, 63 Shubas, as you see over here, selected in history uh, from different people. In other words, the, the first is the Gershwirgon, then something from Abena Gershom, then a Shuba from Rashi, then a Shuba from the Rif, Shuba from the Rambam, a Shuba from, uh, what do you call it, um, Rabbeinu Tom, Marm Rottenberg, Rosh, Rajba, Trumas Adeshen, Mariwal, Marik, Rivosh, and so forth, all in English. And the kids are in other words, and he does a very, very good job of uh, summarizing the technical parts 
that the average person can read. And again, I'll say it again, you can learn a lot from this book. The two books together, uh, uh, let me let me just read you some of the titles, uh, taken at random over here. Uh, he's got from uh, Swiss Yaakov, Bearing Your Head in the Synagogue to Honor a King. He's got um, Compelled to Raise a Beard from the Shimshamor Purgo, you know, that we did. Uh, the famous thing from Nodebut about hunting. Uh, the Rabbi Kibeger with the famous cipher who was a cheater. Books printed on Shabbos, what do you do with that? Um, Shlomo Kluger, Violating Shabbos and Assault a Hasidic Rabbi. That's a famous one, right? Um, a Soldier Coin and a Jewish Dead from the Sam Hasidic. Um Reliance on an official report of death from Mitzvah Khanan. Um, and, there, you know, and the rabbin is a profession. All I can tell you is that for those who are interested in any sort of stuff that I do from time to time, if you're interested in the subject, uh, which is the Shalos and Shuas as a historical source, uh, you want to learn the history of the Jewish people from this literature, uh, which is so rich, but it's very difficult to penetrate. So if you want to start in this subject, you want to get the right cheater book. Free Elf is like the best cheater book. It's ironic, but it's the true. And um, he got so popular with this that he started doing something very weird. Then he published seven volumes in his old age of reform responsa, in which he says oh, they're very interesting. They're just weird. He got a lot of shyness from reform congregations, usually about death matters, because you know how the world is. They don't keep nothing, but everybody, what's the expression? They don't keep anything, but everybody uh, covers the mirror in the Shiva house, <laughs> you know, like that. So things with funerals, plus he had a brother with the funeral business and so forth. But he also has a lot of other questions also. I don't want to make light of it, but these are for the reform movement. <laughs> so they're weird because what he does is like this. Oh, this is such and such a question. Uh, the Achiezer says this. Rabbi Kivager says that. There's a tube a rush on this. It's all very interesting. And then it'll end like this. Of course, we're reformed. We don't believe in any of that. So we just do whatever we want. He's always like that. But I, I want to say this. It's, it's refreshing that he doesn't shoot the ball. What you find nowadays is people say, you know, I can prove from the Gemara that it's okay, I don't know, to be gay or something like that. He doesn't do that. He'll say, you're not supposed to. We're reformed, so we do it anyway. So it's very clear, black and white. That I would not recommend so much to people. It's only for certain types. But the two books that I just mentioned over here, The Response to Literature and Treasury Response, you should probably get online. I think are very good. Uh, you pick up a lot of ideas. Even though now we live in the age of the internet, so it's, oh, you can pick up ideas otherwise. But it's ironic. Now, late in life, I couldn't get this online. I remember he wrote a um, business called Let's Not Quarrel. That was the name of the article. I read it many years ago when the Hebrew College was alive, like in a reformed journal. And he says, listen, the Orthodox, don't get angry at us. We, life was what it was. You know, we just drifted off into reform. But, you know, let's not have a malchukis. That reflects the fact that in the last 10 years of his life, which is in the 1980s, he's got to see the handwriting on the wall that the reform is not going to last. You know what I'm saying? Because you could already tell by the 1980s. Simply because they're not keeping the young people. You understand? Know they're not keeping the young people. If you can't keep the youth then where is it going to go? Uh, they used to rely on new people coming from outside reform to join the movement. Now, in the last 30 years, they've been relying on Goyim joining the movement, things like that. It doesn't work. And so, 
they died at a very old age, and but with a I would say a gift for uh, explaining a response in English. Um, the uh, the rest of the volumes, and I, I like I said, I wouldn't recommend for people, but the two volumes, the response literature, treasure response, are uh, really very good, and. Um, if you're interested in, in getting Gideas, people always writing me, so where would you recommend it? Is that and the other? That's a starter. Uh, now that you have the internet, you can do, you can find the thing and free off and then chase it down if you're interested in doing that in the internet. So as I said, uh, this is, uh, I mean, you know, he stayed in his profession until he retired. Uh, the, it's, you know, times have changed. He has a question about homosexuality where he says, oh, reform is all against that. That's because at that time, that was America. You see, today would write differently. You know, it's a big time bound. Uh, anyway, that is this very interesting person. I'm going to contrast him. There was another reform rabbi named William Browdy who was in, in, uh, in Providence. And I don't know much about him, but they were always arguing at the reform conventions. And... Browdy, who was a scholar and also translated a lot of uh, Midrashim and things like that, in the 1930s, you're not going to believe this, 1930s, he said, you know, there's something wrong with us. we got to go back to Shabbos and Kashras and things like this. And actually, every, this way he said, and every student who's an A-level student in the Hebrew Union College should take off one year to learn any yeshiva. That didn't go nowhere. Free off with the type of guy, shoot that down. You see? So, the reform movement possibly had a chance of reconnecting? Not really. And therefore, they're on the road that they are now. Uh, anyway, I just want to wrap it up with that. I want to thank Dobie Safir and company, as always, for their support. And with that, I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.